Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 139 is familiar to all of us. How often don't we hear it quoted in a sermon, say something from verses 1 through 12, which speaks about such comfort that God knows us inside out and is with us at all times and all places. Verses 13 through 16 are often used to condemn abortion. The latter part of verse 18 is often used for funerals. When I awake, I'm still with you. And of course, uh, often we sing the last stanza, which speaks about search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any grievous way in me. We sing that after the Ten Commandments because we need the Lord to reveal our sin, that we truly are repentant and forgiven. Meanwhile, everybody ignores the elephant in the room. You probably know what that that means. Elephant in the room is something so obvious you can't miss it, but people choose to ignore it. Can you imagine you go home this afternoon, you open your door to your home, and there's an elephant in your living room, and you say, I can't deal with an elephant in my living room right now, so I'm going to pretend it's not there. Well, you can do that, but the elephant is there. You have to deal with it. The elephant in the room in, in our, our, our psalm is the verses 19 through 22, where, for instance, we read, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Can you imagine that this afternoon you had convinced your neighbor, never, never in church, but Convince your neighbor to come to this afternoon's service and uh, that neighbor is listening to this, you know, oh, slay the wicked, oh, Lord. Uh, neighbor probably say, you people are nuts. You're out of your mind. Slay the wicked? Is that what you preach? Is that what you teach in your church? I want nothing to do with it. And so you can understand that sometimes as, as Christians, we struggle with these words in Scripture and whether we, we want to read them or preach on them or, or sing about them. The problem is, or the reality is, that these verses 19 through 22 are the glue that hold the entire psalm together. Psalm 139 has different sections that you can use. They're all beautiful and they're all true. But verses 19 through 22 make this a gospel message. Because it works this way. First 18 verses. What an amazing God we have. He loves us. He's always with us. He's planned out our life. Now how monstrous is it that there are people who hate him and reject him? And then David comes to the realization, what if my life is not right with God? What if deep down I hate God? What if I don't have a relationship with him? That becomes the message of this psalm. We've got an amazing God. Who wants to reject him? And I want to make sure that my life is right with him. There's that flow through the psalm. And we're going to look at that this afternoon under this theme, Search me, O God, and know my heart. And we'll see three things. The relationship of God with us, the horror of wickedness, and the prayer to be led in the way everlasting. In the first point, we're dealing with the verses 1 through 18. God who loves us, 
who knows us and is always with us. It can be broken down into three subsections, verses 1 through 6. God knows us inside out. 7 through 12, God is with us at all times and in all places. And then 13 through 18, God plans out our life from the womb to the tomb, from the cradle to the grave. So an amazing part of scripture, I think as a, as a pastor and a, a preacher, that this is one of the most beautiful parts of scripture as it comes to describe how close God is with us and knows us and is always with us. Although other Psalms like 23 and 121 come to mind and Romans, 100, uh, Romans 8 as well. It's so important that we don't look at Psalm 139 as uh, an excellent theological lesson. You know, theology students love this, this, this psalm. Right? They use it as proof text to, to show the omnipotence of God. He's all-powerful. The omniscience of God. He knows all things. And the omnipresence of God. He's, he's everywhere present. Those are true things. Wonderful things. But David wasn't writing this as as theology. He's writing this as, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me to have a God like this, who knows me inside out, who's always with me? In fact, who has planned out my whole life. Psalm 139 should bring us so close to God and value very deeply the relationship we have with him. Let's look at the first six verses, which starts off with the amazing praise, praise, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. The words in Hebrew uh, suggest a, a deep intimacy that God has with us. And you might say, well, does God really know me? There's eight billion people on this planet. Is God able to know everybody inside out? I mean, I don't even come close. Most of you people, I hardly know. I, I see you, I talk to you for a moment. You know, I got a, a glimmer of maybe who you are, but not God. He doesn't have just a, you know, a, a little bit of a sense who you are. He knows you inside out. He knows the words you will speak that will come off your tongue even before you say them. He is with you at, at every moment. It's like, a, like the, the intimate relationship that a mother has with her baby at her breast. It's so sweet, so intimate. Mom knows her baby in a, in, a, in a beautiful and amazing way. Something that really stands out is what David says in verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down. I mean, you look at those verses, what, what you're getting from this is that it's never a moment in our life that, that God's not intimately aware of what we're doing and that he's with us. When I get out of bed in the morning, I go to the washroom, I go to the breakfast table, I have my oatmeal and a cup of coffee. Guess what? God is behind me and before. He's like my bodyguard. He's giving me the VIP treatment. He's got his hand on, on, on my shoulder. He's intimately aware of where I am, what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, and all my struggles. It's an amazing truth because we indeed go through a, a lot of things in our life. Maybe, um, you know, children, your dad's going to get in the plane tomorrow morning and 
fly off to Toronto. It's, it's good to know that God is, is with your dad on the airplane. But you know what? When you get on your tricycle tomorrow morning or bicycle, go up and down the driveway or around the block, there's God right, right there behind you, before, hand on your shoulder. He knows you, knows what's going on, and he's taking care of you. This first section closes with these words, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I, I cannot attain it. What an amazing God we have. Now, this raises an even deeper point. Uh, we see that in verses 7 through 12, where, where Paul says, or Paul, David says in very poetic language, you know, you could, you could try. You could be in a very vulnerable situation. You're never going to get away from God. You're never going to have a moment where you say, I am all alone. Go up to heaven. Go down to Sheol. Go to the furthest reaches of the sea. God is there. So I, I could get in a rocket ship. People are planning this. Get, get in a rocket ship and fly to Mars. God is seated right beside me. And he will land with me on Mars. I'm not, God's not absent. He's not away. I could go down to the deepest, darkest mine shaft. I could be in a submarine at the bottom of the ocean. God is with me in the submarine. Holding my hand. Always with me. And then in poetic language, David says, you know, I could catch the first ray of the dawn and go shooting across the sea, right to the Pacific, right to, to Japan, you know, going at the speed of light. And God is with me even at the speed of light at all times in all places. How do you feel about that? For some people, this may seem a little spooky and a little awkward, like, you know, we got our boundaries is God always with me? Do I never have my private moments? Do I never get away? It's like discovering that there's a, a camera in your bedroom and somebody's watching you all the time. How do you feel about that? But God is watching us all the time and he also knows what's going on in our heart. I, I bear a grudge against somebody. I have lust for somebody. I'm filled with pride or greed. God knows it all together. And if you don't have a relationship with God, this is spooky and you might not like it, but David rejoices in it. He says, it is fantastic. It doesn't matter where I am or what's going on in my life, even in trials and tribulations, God knows it, God is with me, and he takes care of me. And if he looks in my mind, and if he looks in my heart, and he sees sin, thank God. God for that. Because, you know, as David makes clear in the last couple of verses, I want God to know my sin and I want to bring it out so that I can confess it and be forgiven and move on with a right relationship with the Lord. As David says in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. There's nothing sweeter than a God who intimately knows us, is with us, and takes care of us. Indeed, that brings us to verses 13 through 16, where David talks about how God created uh, babies. Uh, God shapes a baby in a mother's womb, and that's an amazing creation. I love the poetry here. And as every, every parent who's had a baby knows, when that baby is born, it's, it's awesome, right? You know, who doesn't count the toes? 
and hold the fingers and look at the ears and touch the nose and kiss the lips. It's just amazing how God has formed this baby in a, in a mother's womb and shaped it to be a, a human being. But also it's life. It's, it's a, a baby that's created to, to be the image of God. And although David is not talking about abortion, clearly what, what's taught here would condemn abortion. But David, what he's getting at is that not only does God create us in the womb, and that baby is, 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 a, is a human being, but David says God plans out that baby's whole life, even from the moment of conception. He, he says in verse 16, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. We know there's a book of life, and the names of the elect are in there. But when David talks about books here, he's actually talking about God's predestination and his providence. He plans out our life, who our family would be, our education, our career, our health, all planned out by him. It's part of his providence. And that's a very important and comforting to know. You know, there... Sometimes I might be a little disillusioned with my life. I think, you know, I would have liked to have had a little better wife than I do. Am I kidding myself? The wife I have is the best possible wife I could have because that's what God planned. That's what God gave me. You know, the, in, in, in careers and health and strength and life, one person God plans, you're going to be 98 years old. Another person. Like Marcus, God says, you're not even going to become an adult. That's God's plan. That's God's providence. In one way or the other, it is for our good. And the next verse makes that very clear when David says, I awake and I am still with you. It may very well be that David is talking here about simply waking up and getting out of bed. But from our New Testament perspective, Knowing about our Lord Jesus Christ, we understand a deeper truth here. We're talking about falling asleep, dying, and waking up immediately to meet our Lord Jesus Christ. Reminds us of what Jesus said to Martha at the death of Lazarus in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Because Jesus died and rose for us when we come to the end of our life, maybe only 19 years old, we close our eyes to this world and we open our eyes. And who's there? But our Lord Jesus Christ standing there, beaming at us, taking us up to heaven to the bosom of Abraham and assuring us that one day we will get our bodies back in glory. Our God plans out our life from the moment we are conceived in our mother's womb. He plans out our life. It may be a few years, many years. It may be health. It might be illness. But God is there with us every step of the way. And we have that comfort. And we know that when we come to that final moment, that final chapter, and we close our eyes to this world, we will awake and be with our Lord Jesus Christ eternally in perfection. 
It's as Paul says in Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That brings us to our second point, the verses 19 through 22, what could be called the elephant in the room, a portion of scripture that many would like to avoid. And I'll admit, I've I've had my times too that I, I struggled with these verses and I never sang these, had these verses sung in a, in, a, in a worship service. But they're in the Bible and we have to ask ourselves the question, why? And what, what does it mean? You cannot get around it by saying, ah, that's one of those Old Testament things that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's true with the ceremonial law and, and things like that. But, but not this. And we know that because our Lord Jesus Christ said exactly the same kind of things as you find in our passage. Book of Revelation does as well. You cannot just, you know, ignore it and, and, and just wipe it away. In fact, the danger is, and I'm saying this to you as a pastor and a preacher, if you want to avoid these, these verses... What about your relationship with God? Are you trying to hide something? Like if there's sin in our life, if things are not right, you better look at these verses and you better make sure that your life is right with God, that that sins are washed away so that we are on the right track. So how do we understand the verses 19 through 22? These are known as, this is known as imprecatory language. Imprecatory simply means that you call on God to punish his and your enemies. Now most of the imprecatory psalms are written by David, which, which may make you think he's a pretty, pretty nasty uh, kind of a guy and he's got a lot of personal vendettas. That's not David. You know, uh, David, remember when Saul was after him, trying to kill him? David wouldn't touch a hair of his head. And sure, David had to, to fight the Philistines, but he did that as God's enemies. He did not wage personal vendettas. And it's so important not to take these verses and say, I, I hate, you know, the, these people, that you make it personal against people and you harm them in, in, in any way. The Lord Jesus said, you love your enemies. And Paul repeats that in Romans 12. And I mention that because, you know, sometimes the way Christians talk about Muslims is appalling. You know, they hate them. You, you can't do that. You disagree with their theology, of course you do. But you love your Muslim neighbor, and you treat him or her decently. There's, there's no room here for personal vendettas or fighting people or hurting them. What we need to see is what David is saying. For instance, in verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? He's also talking about men of blood and the fact that they take your name in vain. In other words, David is talking about people who hate God and who show that in their lifestyle. Those are God's enemies, David says, and as a result, they are my enemies as well. I, I hate them with a complete hatred. It's a perfect hatred. It's a righteous hatred. If you hate God, and God, you know, doesn't, doesn't hold on to you and just ignore your sin, you are God's enemy, you're my enemy too, says David. 
Okay, so far so good. But, you know, when David says in, in verse 19, first half there, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Isn't that a bit much? Like David saying, wish you'd kill those people. Can you really talk that way? There's two things about Hebrew poetry that I'd like to, to teach you right now. It's extremely important. The first thing is Hebrew poetry loves hyperbole. And that means an exaggerated way of speaking. And I do that sometimes. When I was a kid, I would say to my mom, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. I'm not going to eat a horse, but the message is clear. I'm hungry, right? And when David says, I wish you would slay them, O Lord, that's a, an exaggerated way of speaking to drive the point home. This is really serious. The other thing about Hebrew poetry, here we have an example of synonymous parallelism. We've got some eye rolls here, you know, with big words like that. Let me explain. It's, it's really simple. In Hebrew poetry, like Psalm 139, when you have two lines in a stanza or a verse, the second line is the same as the first line. Different words and often adding a little bit more meaning to it. That's how Hebrew poetry works. So in the first line, you have... Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. And then the second line is, O men of blood, depart from me. That's what David is saying. He's not saying literally, kill them. He's saying, O Lord, those people are dead to me because of the way they hate you and treat other people. And you know what? That's a basic theme in the whole Psalter. Psalm, Psalm 1 sets the tone and the theme of the entire Psalter, and it starts off by saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And that's how we understand these verses in Psalm 139. You live in sin. You hate God. I don't want to be a part of that. And the reason I don't want to be a part of it is not only because it blasphemes God, but I'm scared of being sucked up into your way of thinking and in your lifestyle. I mean, think of, think of today, you know? Like, uh, you, you could be a, a young teenager uh, living in a neighborhood. you got friends. They're, they're pretty decent. But as they, they grow up, they're 16, 17, they're starting to break into cars. They're stealing cars. And, and at that point, you said, you know what? You were my friends. We hung around together, but not anymore, because what you're doing is wrong. And I don't want to be a part of that. Or even as you get older, you're living in a neighborhood, you got friends in the neighborhood, you, you're growing old together. Get together on a Friday night for a coffee or two, nice. And some beer or two, nice. And then somebody brings out the cocaine. And people are doing cocaine, it happens. You say, no, I'm not going to be a part of that. It's wrong, and I'm not going to be sucked up into that lifestyle and destroy myself. So that's, that's the message that, that David is, is giving here. You know, if you hate God and you live a, a sinful lifestyle, then I don't want part of it. And I'm, and I'm not going to be a part of it. But at the same time, when David speaks about slay the wicked, we should not totally take away the seriousness of this either. And the Lord Jesus Christ makes that clear. Think of what he says in Matthew 23 through 25. First of all, in 23... He speaks about the Pharisees who are whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. 
And then he's got the parable of the ten virgins. Five of them do not enter the wedding feast. They go to hell. And then he talks about the sheep and the goats. And he he puts the goats to the side and says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is eternal death in hell. And that's our world. There's a heaven and there's a hell. And in that hell, people will weep and gnash their teeth eternally. It's very serious. Horrifying. From our perspective today, we're alive. And there may be people in our life, people at work, in our neighborhood, people we grew up with, that we say, I I can't be a part of your life anymore because of the way you think and the way you live and the way you act. Basically, you hate God. I don't want any part of that. But you still love them. And you still care for them. And you would still talk to them. As long as we're alive, we have opportunities to talk with them and to share with them the the good news of Jesus Christ and show you don't have to live like that. Because it's a dead end. It will destroy your life. But there is a joy that is eternal. So again, the message very clearly and very strongly, you know, we, we, we continue to slay the wicked, but with the word of God and with the sword of the Spirit to lead them to repentance, to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That brings us to our, our last point. In the last two verses of the Psalms, you, you have a sense of how this is going, right? We've, we've got an amazing God. How horrible it is that, that some people don't love him, adore him, and serve him. And then David goes, what if, what if I'm no different? What if deep down in my life, I'm also showing hatred for God? What's going to happen to me? You might say, well, that's ridiculous. David has to know whether his life is right with God or not. Do you remember Psalm 32? David committed adultery with a woman and murdered that woman's husband. And he didn't even realize he was sinning. His life was unraveling. It was falling apart. But it wasn't until Nathan the prophet spoke to him that he saw how horrible his sin was. David knew he missed the boat once. By God's grace, he was saved. He doesn't want to miss it again. He could be living in sin. And you know, brothers and sisters, that's also a a danger for us. Sometimes we commit sins, we don't even know they're sins. Or we commit sins and our, our, our senses get dulled and we become comfortable with the sin. We explain it away, we continue to live in it, or sometimes we just don't see it. You know, I, I might say about myself, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I love my wife and I love my children. I'm so good to them. No, you're not. You're a jerk. You treat your wife and your children horribly. One of the toughest things in life is to see yourself as others see you. And that's that's what we have to understand with Psalm 130. And that's why David prays to God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. Can God search me and know my heart? Well, yeah. 
That's the whole point of the early part of this song. God knows what I'm going to say even before I, I say. He knows me inside out. He knows the sins that maybe I'm not even noticing or that I have got used to and, and comfortable with that are putting a, a, a barrier between, between him and He knows us. And he's also got a way of revealing to us what those sins are. Uh, we think of Hebrews 4, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word, under the power of the Holy Spirit, like a sharp knife into our heart, revealing our deepest intentions and desires. But that, what that means, brothers and sisters, from our point of view, are, are you serious that you, know, you want your sins uncovered and dealt with and to have a right relationship with God, then you've got to be in the place to make it happen, and that's in God's Word. That, that's why the preaching is so important to us. But also Bible reading, and meditation, and prayer. Because it's there, as we read God's Word, and we meditate on it, we begin to see who we really are. And we weep over our sins. We grieve over our sins. And say, oh Lord, please, don't let this stand between us. Wash me clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. Search me. Let's get it out. Cleanse it so that I may have a right relationship with you. And so we see, brothers and sisters, that all of this also is, is possible only in our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and David knows that. Psalm 110, he he talks about the Lord says to my Lord, that's David's son, who is his Lord and his Savior. He's the only one that can save him because he goes to the cross, bearing our sins, paying for those sins. And when we turn to him, weeping and grieving, he washes us clean and casts our sins into the depths of the sea. And he renews us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we may rise, be new men, be new women, new boys and girls, are able to, to live our lives to the praise and the glory of our God. And in this way, that amazing God, that God who knows us inside out, who's always there with us, who gives us his word and spirit, gives us the Lord Jesus Christ, I may have a relationship with him. That's my God. That's my Father, the one who loves me, and I love him. And he will lead me on the paths of life everlasting, not letting anything separate us from his love in Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen.